Exodus 23, and we're going to read verses 1 to 26. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your, due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. For six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and donkey may have rest, and that the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time of the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather from the fields the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before you, to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared for you. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemy and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you, and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods or serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry, all be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Thanks, Russ.
Morning, folks. I'm Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church. Really lovely to have you along. If you're new or visiting, um, a special welcome to you. I hope you stick around and um, love to get to know you afterwards. Uh, what do we do when we read a passage like that in the Bible? What do you, what do, you do? Well, the first thing you do is you pray. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of being able to gather as your people under your word in your world. And we ask that you would help us by your spirit to leave here clearer in our understanding of all that your word says so that we may live lives of thankful obedience for all that you've done on our behalf in Jesus Christ our Lord. In his, in his name we pray. Amen. Rightio, unless you've been living under a rock for, for quite some time or off grid, you know, power to you if you can manage it, uh, then it'll be no surprise to you that Christians and Christianity is increasingly unpopular amongst a, well, I'll say a certain number of our society. I say a certain number because I'm not sure exactly how many there are. They just seem to be very, very loud. What started some years ago, to my, rec- to my reckoning, as a reasonable and a genuine question about how it is that Christians could be happy, for example, to eat prawns in seeming contradiction to God's command in Leviticus 11.12. It'll flash up on your screen. And yet remain so staunch on issues of sexual ethics where God forbade, for example, homosexuality or adultery in Leviticus 18, 20 and 23. How is it that Christians seem to have relaxed or happily overlooked some aspects of God's word and yet continue to hold fast on others? You understand the question? Have you heard that question before? It's a reasonable, good question with completely reasonable answers but as i said that that question if 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 you like seems to belong to a, a bygone era because along the way that question has stopped being asked genuinely and instead an answer has been assumed an answer that says something like this oh those christians they just pick and choose the bits of the bible they like and forget about the rest have you heard that sort of idea before? Has that ever been sort of the charge leveled, if you like, maybe from one of your friends or your family or your co-workers when they heard you go to church on Sunday, you wacko? Well, that sort of assumed answer has subtly given way to a belief that, well, Christians really are just ignorant hypocrites to be tolerated but scoffed at. And has morphed more recently all the way, well, actually leading all the way to the events of this week where Daniel Andrews, Premier of Victoria publicly denounced the views of Bible-believing Christians as, quote, appalling, intolerant, hate-filled bigotry that is just plain wrong. Of course, he said all this in relation to the newly appointed and then freshly sacked CEO of the Essendon Football Club, Andrew Thorburn, who, being a Christian and a chairman of a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching Anglican church, City on a Hill in Melbourne, which quickly led to him having to step down from his role just 30 hours after being appointed. It was said that his views as a Christian were at odds with his ability to be the CEO of a football club. I'm not sure if you saw it on Wednesday, but the, uh, the senior pastor of City on a Hill, Guy Mason, uh, appeared. He went on Sunrise, a breakfast news television, we'll call it. To, do, to discuss this with the host, David Kosh, where Koshy made several references to Guy's, and I quote again, hardline and unloving interpretation of the Bible. And then when Guy tried to answer Koshy's straw man critiques, and that's what they were, now Koshy refused to have a battle of the Bible with you. 
because after all, it's a 2,000-year-old document from a different time and era. Era, sorry, but I think he thinks era. <laughs> that was actually, un- that was not even deliberate, Luke. That was just, it just flows out of me now. That is coming everywhere. <laughs> but I want to say, folks, the problem for Koshi, the problem for Daniel Andrews, the problem for anyone who found themselves nodding with those chaps during this week is that this is a battle of the Bible, whether you like it or not. What I mean by that is it's not that the questions that are being asked of Christianity are wrong. It's perfectly legitimate, appropriate, sensible to ask tough questions about Christian beliefs, about the Bible, about how it relates to modern day life. That's completely appropriate. They're welcome questions. But the only way to answer those questions genuinely from a Christian perspective in a way that seeks to do justice in understanding a Christian position is to understand it from the Bible. This is a battle of the Bible. Of course it is. So purporting to engage in a discussion about Christian beliefs and then refusing to engage with the Bible is grossly ignorant at best, insincere and malicious at worst. It would be like asking a scientist to explain the theory of relativity but insist he not reference any of the works of Albert Einstein. Or a boomer asking a zoomer to explain the evolution of social media without reference to Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook. It's ingenuine and impossible. But there's good news here, folks. We're not interested in dodging the tough questions or the difficult bits of the Bible here at Wagga Evangelical Church. In fact, it's precisely the reason that we repeatedly teach through entire books of the Bible from beginning to end all the time. It's because we're fully convinced with reason that the Bible is God's timeless word, written through a timely people and culture, and that as such, it always contains things that God has deemed important for us to know and understand. And so we're happy to let God's word set the agenda on themes and topics that may be uncomfortable, but of which we cannot dodge and we will not dodge. And so though it requires some deep thought and hard work to understand at times, it's not just necessary to do this, to know who God is, but more importantly, it's necessary to know so that we can relate to God rightly. And as God would have it, well, where are we up to in our series on Exodus? We're up to the point where God gives Israel the law. The Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant, commonly referred to as the, the Mosaic Law, not meaning it was given in little cracked tiles, with, not that, just through mosa- Mosaic. You with me? And this is, I think, super, uh, super providential because, well, as we run through today, as we look at this section, we'll deal with the principles to answer those kinds of questions about why Christians are okay to eat pork and yet still maintain that the only proper or God-endorsed means of sexual expression is between a married couple, which is exclusively a man and a woman in a lifetime commitment. So let's turn to the text itself. You've just heard uh, Russ read for us one section of this big chunk of chapters. I chose this little section, if you like, because it's a kind of representative cross-section of the whole chapter, the whole chunk, rather, 20 to sort of 24 in that it reveals important aspects uh, that help us understand the significance of the Mosaic law, both then for the Israelites and for us now as Christians. So have Exodus open there, have your thumb in sort of those chapters from 19 to 24. We're going to flick around a little bit. Sorry that there's no Bibles. That's a good sign because it means people are taking them and it means I've got to get some more. 
I would normally say, get one and write your name in it. But I don't know if you can knock off one from the person next to you and write your name in it. No, you can't. We'll get to that. But the first thing I want you to do is to understand and see from the text that it's that the Mosaic law reveals important aspects of God's character. That's important for Israel then and us now. Have a look. In fact, they're in your outline. Hopefully you got one. If you didn't, go and grab one. These are in your outline. But we're going to see three aspects specifically about God's character revealed, that the Mosaic law reveals God's character as gracious, as holy, and as just. Let me do those three first. First one, the law reveals God's graciousness. How is that so? How, how does that work? Well, look at Exodus 20, where God first speaks the Ten Commandments to Israel. Have that there with you. But in fact, before you start to read what God says, notice when he says this to Israel. That is, God spoke his word and his law to a redeemed people, to a people he'd already saved out of Egypt, already saved out of slavery. What I'm getting at here is God didn't first appear to Moses in Egypt and say, hey, Moses, here's a list of ten commands. You get Israel to do this. If they do this, then I'll save them. Deal? Deal. Terrific. No. No. God saved them first and then gave them his instructions for how to respond. After he'd miraculously delivered them time and time again. So the first thing I want you to see is that God's character is defined and revealed by grace. Unmerited, undeserved kindness that he shows to a people who cannot and will not earn or merit his favour by works. That's the when God speaks his law. In fact, God underlines this for them there in Exodus 20, verse 2, as God reminds and underlines his grace to them. Read it there. He says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of slavery. And only then does he start to tell them how to respond. God is a gracious God. Some people read this and they suggest, oh, well, if God was indeed gracious, then he and he shouldn't require a response. That's, that's unloving. That's not gracious. That's nonsense. In fact, best illustration I could sort of come up with, imagine you, imagine you see a homeless man in the street, a man unable to free himself from the cycle of poverty that he's trapped in, no way to better his circumstances through any sort of effort of his own, and suppose that you are in a position, financially in a position, and in a mind, free and willing, to invite that man to come and live in one of your rental properties, for example. And not just that, you're actually able to provide him with everything he needs to live in and maintain that property in its optimal state for his optimal comfort. Would it lessen the act of your grace to him to show this man how to live well in your house and take care of it for his good? Would that lessen the act of grace? Or improve on the act of grace? And would he not himself be very keen to know, both for his own sake, so that he could ensure his genuine, appropriate thankfulness could be expressed to you as a recipient of such a gracious good act? Can you think? I mean, that's kind of like what it's like with Israel. They are helpless. They are hopeless. They are unable to better their circumstances. And not because he must, but because he chooses, God rescued them from Egypt. He rescued them from slavery. And then he gave them not just everything to survive, even providing them food in the desert, 40 years of free bread. That's not a bad deal. 
But then he gave them guidelines to help them flourish as a people. That's what the commandments represent here, folks. First and foremost, the graciousness of God who saved the helpless, hopeless people and then shows them how to live well. It's the first thing I want you to be convinced of the Mosaic law, that it reveals God as an extraordinarily gracious God to an extraordinarily undeserving people. But that's not all. What's the next, next aspect the law reveals, both then and now, about God's character? Well, the second thing it is, is his holiness. See this. I, I talk about God's holiness a lot. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. And I do that because it's a constant major theme of the Bible. But just in case you haven't heard me bang on about this, and just in case you don't know what it means to be holy, and so you don't go away sort of thinking it's just a weird religious word that has no particular meaning, let me remind you, let me remind you quickly again, what holiness of God actually means. Simply put, it's to say that to say God is holy is to recognize that he is completely unique and distinct from anything and everything else you can think of. God's holiness describes his uniqueness and his distinction as the creator who is independent from, outside of, over and above all else in creation. It's why the angels can't stop singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, when they're in his presence, recorded in Isaiah 6, recorded in Revelation 4. It's because to be in his presence is such a magnificent, transcendent experience that all else fades into irrelevance. Holy, holy, holy. Now, how does the law point to God's holiness? Well, God himself makes this plain and, 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 and really plain by virtue of the fact that his first focus as he speaks to Israel about the right way to respond to his grace is to make sure they feel the weight of his awesome holiness. It's why the Ten Commandments start with, have a look at it there, chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, that's not the selfish, egotistical claptrap of a megalomaniac. No, that is the right and proper command that is right and good for Israel to hear and follow because God, as the holy, distinct and unique creator of the universe, he is the only thing worth worshipping. He is and ought be the top of Israel's desire to honour because he is the cause of all things. To do something else would be less for them. Imagine worshipping a created object over the creator himself. That's nonsense. It's unimaginable. I mean, imagine going to the Louvre in Paris. Imagine by some miracle of time machinery or something like that imagine you go and you see leonardo da vinci standing beside his famous portrait of the mona lisa imagine going there seeing this painting and then praising the canvas or the oil paints or the paintbrush for the magnificence of the portrait rather than the man who painted it could you that's again it's nonsense be unthinkable and god doesn't want israel to make that mistake That same, he doesn't want them to fall into the same trap as the nations around them who worship created gods, who worship gods depicted in the image of something created rather than the creator. More on that in a minute. So his first command for their good is to recognize his holiness, holiness and worship him alone. In fact, this idea of 
getting worship right. It's paramount in God's dealing with Israel. It's why the first four commands are all about how Israel are to relate to God. The focus is on the the vertical axis, if you will. If you can imagine relationships on a vertical axis between God and between Israel, that's the first focus of the first four commandments. And it's constantly reinforced through the whole Bible, but it's constantly reinforced through this chunk of Exodus as well. In fact, just notice how many references there are to this vertical relationship between Israel and God, marked out by concern for appropriate worship. As I said, first four commandments are all about this. Have a look. I'll reference them really quickly. Chapter, sorry, chapter 20, verse 3, commandment 1, no gods before Yahweh. Verse 4, commandment 2, don't carve an image as if you could represent God honorably in doing so. Verse 7, commandment 3, it's all about using Yahweh's name with the proper respect it deserves. Verse 8, command 4, all about a Sabbath day rest, deliberately setting aside a day of the week as a distinct holy day to intentionally reflect on and praise the God of creation, to desire His rest. It's all about the vertical axis of how you relate to God. How Israel are to honour and relate to God. But the priority of honouring God's holiness and ensuring Israel relate to him properly, it doesn't end with the first four commandments. It's repeated time and time and time again. Have a look there. Uh, Chapter 20, verses 22 to 25. A reminder of God's holiness and how to worship him appropriately through how you make an altar even. Or 23, 10 to 19, a reminder again of the significance of the Sabbath law. Or 23, 20 to 33, a reminder of annual festivals to celebrate who God is and what he has done for Israel. All these laws reinforce that Yahweh is holy, distinct, separate, unique, preeminent, super important. We'll come back to this in a minute. I need to move on. So far we looked at the the Mosaic law points us to God's graciousness. It points us to God's holiness. What's the third aspect of God's character revealed by the law? It's his justice. Now we see this from the law, the Ten Commandments, especially actually. While God's first priority is the vertical relationship between God and people, that doesn't mean that God is uninterested in the horizontal relationships that exist between people. Do you understand what I mean? between the Israelites and each other. In fact, if you care to scan the next six commandments in Exodus 20, you'll see that they're all about the horizontal relationships between people and people. And what you'll notice is an underlying theme of justice. That is God's determination of what is good and fitting and optimal for human-to-human relationships to flourish. And by contrary, what's not optimal. Look at them briefly again. I'll say more. Verse 12, commandment 5, honour your mother and father. The significance of, and the importance of the only relationship from which future life can spring. God holds it up really high. Or verse 13, commandment 6, don't murder. The preciousness of life itself, underscored. Or verse 14, commandment 7, do not commit adultery. The significance of the married relationship. And a, and a seedbed that will become the basis for sexual ethics. Verse 15, commandment 8, don't steal. So give us a personal property. Verse 16, commandment 7, all about telling the truth, how you use your words. Verse 17, commandment 10, all about coveting or envying things that don't belong to you but belong to another. Even how you think is regulated here. Do you see that? Do you notice that the Ten Commandments are starting to push into human to human relationships how, on how people act, on how they speak, even how they think? 
And by virtue of God commanding and prohibiting certain actions, thoughts, and even speech patterns, he is also revealing his desires and his, ten- and his intentions for how should people should act in the positive sense. That is what conditions are fit for flourishing. And as creator, you ought to know. What I mean by that is he's setting up a standard for justice and morality to be known and judged by. So, for example, when God commanded in verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't tell lies, is the layman's terms. Do you realize in the same command, he's setting up a standard or an expectation for truth-telling? Or when he commands in verse 15, you shall not steal, he's at the same time setting up a positive expectation not just for people to be content with what they do have, but also a willingness to share with those that don't have so that they may not have to steal. Do you see how it cuts both ways? What's really interesting about this is that these same morals and values, these underlying appeals and this sense of justice of what is right and what is wrong, it's the basis for most of the common laws that we enjoy in Western civilization. It's really funny that actually now people just refer this to this as natural law. The idea that people just have rights and ought be treated justly and fairly. On what basis? We assume that it's natural. In fact, it's supernatural in origin. It's given by God and it's for the good of his creatures. And it highlights God's desire for just and proper treatment. In fact, this is probably more easily recognized in how the other laws that are given in the, in the book of covenants, the expanded version, if you like, of the Ten Commandments that God gives, gives Moses. Uh, we read a little bit of it there, chapters 21 to 23. In fact, rather than attempting to read all of them, there's a lot. In fact, if you put all the laws described here and in other, others described in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you know, Israel ended up with about 600, no, no, 613 laws on how to govern the way that they were to love God and love each other as a response to his saving grace. Rather than try to list out all of those 613 laws, I want to actually help you to see that, largely speaking, they can be grouped into three major categories. Again, they're in your outline there. And they help us to understand how they functioned for Israel then. Bear with me here. Let's have a look at them. The moral law is the first category where God reveals and distinguishes between right and wrong, between good and evils, based on his intentions as the creator. And these are the laws that have enduring significance. In fact, we've seen it there already. It's morally wrong. That is, it's always wrong to worship other gods. It's always wrong to fashion an idol to represent the one holy, true and living God of creation. We've looked at that already. It's about the moral law. But there's another category of law here. It's the civil law. These include the laws that were specific in in the historical and cultural context for Israel to govern their treatment of each other. And in fact, examples of these can make us a little bit weirded out at first because they're so far removed from our experience that we just don't know what to do with them immediately. Let me point it out to you. Chapter 21, verses 2 to 11, deals with how you are to treat fellow Hebrew slaves, which immediately sends alarm bells ringing through our head. What? Slaves? We hear that word and we think immediately to 18th and 19th century examples of the slave trade in the, in the Americas and in England. Rather than the kind of, I'll use this advisedly, the kind of employment slash welfare scheme that slavery or bonded service actually represented in the ancient Near Eastern expression. 
And even then, God's laws surrounding how you were to treat a servant or a slave, they were radically different to the way that slavery was practiced in this era. In fact, Deuteronomy 15.15, God says, Remember you yourselves were slaves in Egypt. And then he gives them the command to set people from bonded service free every seven years. That's not standard. Or in fact, he reminds them repeatedly here in Exodus 22.21, in Exodus 23.9, don't oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners. You were foreigners in Egypt. God gives them a standard for dealing with foreigners even that is radically different from the, the treatment they experienced as slaves in Egypt. So what we're to do with the civil law then is to focus not on the practices but on the principles. The principles that are outlined, not necessarily the practical examples, which may be the same or different in our, in our experience. Let me give you an example. Uh, 23.1, we heard that read. Russ read it out for us. Don't spread false reports or help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. The principle of truth-telling again and integrity is the same then and now and the practice of acting with truth and integrity in a court setting remains the same then and now, yes? But verse 5, if you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help. And that practical example might not come across your way too often. But that doesn't mean there's nothing here to understand or nothing here for us to learn from. In fact, the principle of doing good, even to those who would hate you, remains the same. Love your enemies, says Jesus. Do good to those who hate you. We'll we'll talk about that in a minute. The principle remains the same, though the practical example may work out very, very differently. That's what we're going to see about the civil law, the principles versus the practice. The third category of the Mosaic law that I want you to notice, aside from the moral and the civic sort of categories, is the ceremonial laws. These are the laws that cover the religious practices, if you will. Again, dealing with that vertical relationship between Israel and God and and govern the way they were to relate to God and worship him publicly as a nation, not just for their sake, but for the sake of the horizontal relationships they had with other nations, with other people. Let me, let me explain this to you a little bit uh, more because this is the category of the Mosaic Law that I think causes the most confusion for people generally, even Christians today. See, this is the bit that includes laws about which foods are clean and not clean, which foods you can eat and not eat, Leviticus 11. This has to do with how you purify yourself after childbirth or if you've had some sort of skin infection, Leviticus 12 and 13. even has to do with how you cut your hair what type of clothes you wear in Leviticus 19. In fact, we heard a few of these types of laws read in verse 23. Look at verse 17. Here, Russ read for us, three times a year, all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything that contains yeast. The fat of a festival offering must be not kept until morning. Bring the best first of the first fruits of your soil to the house of Yahweh your God and do not cook a goat in its mother's milk. What? <laughs> you see, we read these kind of ceremonial laws here and we go a bit cross-eyed, not just trying to understand and work out what it means for us now, but even trying to work out what, how is that necessary then? What the heck? And the answer comes back again to Holiness. You see, just as God is holy, meaning he's different and distinct, the Mosaic law was given to make Israel holy, different and distinct from the nations around them. In fact, we hear this from God's own mouth, Exodus 19, 
right before he gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, right before he gives them the Book of the Covenant. Flick back to it. Exodus 19, verses 4. What does he say there? You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you to speak to the Israelites. It's a major function of how the law works for Israel. It was to visually separate and visually clearly separate them out as a nation amongst and beyond, distinct from the pagan nations around them, so that, well, that curious law, Exodus 23, 19, don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. That's not speaking about morality. <laughs> it's not even speaking about civics. It's about speaking, it's speaking to ceremony. We didn't know this for a long time. In fact, lots of biblical theologians sort of puzzled over that verse for ages. But God commanded Israel not to do this because it resembled we've discovered pagan rituals of the Canaanite fertility cult. They would boil a young goat in its mother's milk as a mean of conjuring up some favour from their pagan gods. And here Yahweh wanted his people to look and live and worship differently from the nations around them because they were to be holy to him, distinct and different, so that the nations would know just how different Israel God was, Israel's God was, so that they might too come to know the true and living and uncreated God. Quick summary of where we've been and where we've covered about the Mosaic law so far. Let me just really quickly whip over this. The Mosaic law is given to help Israel respond and live well, the vertical access between them and God, and live well on the horizontal access between each other. The Mosaic law helps to reveal God's character as gracious, as holy, as just. And we see that for Israel, the law could be categorized into three major groups or functions. The moral law, distinguishing right from wrong. The civic law, how to administer justice in society. The ceremonial law, how to live as distinct and holy in their worship. But there's just one more function of the Mosaic law that I want you to see that is pertinent for both Israel then and for us now. Let me do it this way. How do you feel when you hear that there were 613 explicit laws given from God on how Israel were to respond to him? How do you feel about that? (laughs) And I don't mean, you know, you know, assuming that you can sit in judgment over God as though it's somehow inappropriate or wrong for him to give them a pattern for optimal living and human flourishing. Of course, it's not. It's absolutely right. And it's good that as the creator, God would do this for Israel. In fact, as a nation, they thought it was excellent. They readily signed up to the covenant. Have a look at 24 verse 7. We will do everything that Yahweh has said. We will obey. They didn't go, oh, this is oppressive. What the heck? I just thought we were getting a free life. No. And this is good. Yes, we'll do it. What I mean is how confident are you in the the ability of Israel to live according to these laws and commands, all 613 of them? Or how confident would you be if your relationship with God was based on your ability to keep 613 laws perfectly? Could you do it? Could you keep yourself in right standing before God by sheer will and effort? I know I couldn't. 
We'll see in a couple of weeks' time. Israel couldn't do it either. Not him for a moment, it seems. Allah, Exodus 32. What are we to make of this then? What does this say? What does the law, the Mosaic law, say about Israel? What does it say about us? What does it say about God? What does it say about God if his laws and his standards are so heavy to carry, so heavy to carry that in fact it's impossible to bear? Well, actually, that's an important function, the Mosaic law. Both for Israel then and for us now. It's first to make us realize, or it's point, one of the functions is to make us realize that relationship with God based on performance to God's right and reasonable laws and demands, it's impossible. The more I I read and know of the law, the more it just highlights my sinful stupidity. And that's precisely the point. In fact, look at how Paul puts this. Look at how Paul, reflecting on this in Romans 3.19, puts it. He says this. He says, Now that we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous, that is, in right standing, in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we, became con- we become conscious of our sin. Through the law, we, became, we become conscious of our sin? Well, that sucks. Both for Israel then and for us now. In fact, that's really unpalatable. To th- I don't like thinking about that. That makes me uncomfortable. I'm not sure I like that. And of course, that would be the most horrible news if Paul stopped there. It would be the cruelest joke of God on humanity if he simply gave his law just so he could watch them fail, just to leave them there and judge them. But praise God that Paul does go on. Praise God that he doesn't just watch us fail and leave us. Look at the rest of that magnificent chapter in Romans 3. Look at how Paul continues, verse 321 but now apart from the law the righteousness of god has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness is given through faith in jesus christ to all who believe do you hear this friends the law made israel and with them all of humanity including us conscious of the fact that we are unable to keep it so that god could make known not just the need but the reality of another way to be found right with him righteous that's not dependent on your ability to keep the law that's not dependent on your ability to keep the law but is dependent on your faith in christ jesus friends this is the gospel this is the difference between the good advice of religion which just tells you to do better and the good news of the bible in which god has done it for you in christ jesus Now, there's so much more to say about this, more than time permits. But let me just circle back to finish off where we started. We've brushed over this, how the the Mosaic law functioned for Israel. And in doing so, we've already touched on some of the ways it sort of relates to us, revealing God's character, revealing principles for human relationships, making us conscious of sin. But how do you answer that question that we posed to begin with? How do you answer the question of someone who genuinely wants to know why Christians eat prawns and yet maintain biblical ethics on sex and marriage? I tell you, it's not because we pick and choose bits of the Bible we like and ignore the rest. Rather, it's by reading and understanding the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God, all through the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. 
It comes by realizing that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, Matthew 5, 17. That he come to reveal the heart of the law. So that looking to him, we could know and understand God's moral law from the heart, the difference between right and wrong. So we could know God's civic law, that is how to genuinely love your neighbor as yourself from the heart, so that we might know that God's ceremonial law of how to live as a holy and distinct people different from the pagan world around you, it's by the proper worship of God through trusting Jesus. Seeking to be obedient to everything he has commanded us, Matthew 28, 20, not as the means to merit his grace, not as the means to merit his forgiveness, because we can't, but as the means to respond to his grace and his forgiveness. As the God who lived and died to save us from slavery, not to Egypt, from slavery to sin and death. It means we look to Jesus and recognize him as God and honor him as such. So much so that when Jesus declared all foods clean, Mark seven nineteen, we praise God and we eat pork crackles and prawns together if you please. And when Jesus affirms his intention in creation for marriage to be a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman, Matthew 19, we trust him and we seek obedience for our good because he's God. And when Jesus says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5.44, we ask him for the strength to do it by his spirit because otherwise I want to punch him in the face. And when Jesus says through the pen of Paul, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, to not let my freedom as a Christian cause another person to stumble, then I'll refrain from eating goat curry in its mother's milk if that would confuse someone about who God is and how to worship him. I'll refrain from that if that causes someone to stumble, but if it doesn't confuse anyone, I will eat all the goat milk curry my stomach can handle. I'm not sure if you've eaten goat milk curry. Anyone, anyone want a recommendation? I don't, anyways... Seriously, though, what does it mean? Let me just draw a couple more practical implications here. It genuinely, it means that I would personally not participate in an Aboriginal smoking ceremony. I would not personally celebrate Halloween. And we don't do Santa Claus at Christmas. Why? Because these are some of the current cultural practices of our pagan world that detract and distract people from understanding and knowing the one true God through Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced in my conscience that it would be unloving to participate in those things, not because I don't love those people, but it would be unloving of me to be participating in those things. It would be unbiblical and ungodly to cause someone to stumble by my tacit support or encouragement of that event, which detracts from the worship of the one true and living God. And as a forgiven person, I'm seeking to live with him as my king, popular or unpopular as that belief becomes in society not because I'm under the law and not because I must obey to keep my spot in heaven because I'm, but because I'm under God's grace in Jesus and having been forgiven and transformed by his spirit, I want to obey him as the only right and fitting response. That's how we understand the law then and that's how we understand the law now. We are people not under the law but under grace to pursue God's law from the heart as forgiven friends of Christ Jesus. And wrestling to work out what that means in every aspect, in every event 
in every conundrum of life. Let's pray that we might be those people. Hey? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us groping around in the dark trying to work out, like the pagans, how to please you, how to conjure your favour, how to put you in our debt that you, we might receive from your hand that which we deserve. No, no, no. You've shown us by your word, by your law revealed through Israel, your graciousness, your holiness, your justice, your concern that we might come to see that we cannot relate to you rightly on our own, but that you've provided a way for us to relate to you rightly through trusting in Jesus. Father, help us then not to be crippled by the weight of the sin in our lives which persists, but help us to be freed from the burden of that weight because we're looking to Jesus, whose perfection stands in our place, whose resurrection stands as our promise, whose company we will enjoy for eternity because of your gracious goodness to us. May we live lives of thankful obedience to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.